0: The Arkansas courts decided four criminal law cases this week. In Wood v. State 2021-Arc. 201, the Arkansas Supreme Court reversed and corrected an error in the date of the sentencing hearing, but it otherwise affirmed a trial court ruling under Arkansas Rule of Civil Procedure 60, and inherent authority of nunc pro-tunc. Justice Wood explained. Howard Togo Wood Jr. appeals the circuit court's denial of his motion to correct clerical errors in his sentencing order. In 2013, he pleaded guilty to first-degree sexual assault and received a sentence of 360 months' imprisonment. His motion alleged that the sentencing order contained the following clerical errors. 1. An inaccurate criminal history score. 2. The wrong presumptive sentence and three, the incorrect date of his plea hearing. The circuit court denied the motion, finding these issues were substantive rather than clerical. We agree as to the first two alleged errors, but not the third one. We thus affirm in part and reverse and remand in part. Under Arkansas Rule of Civil Procedure 60, a circuit court may set aside a judgment and enter an order nunc pro-tunc, Robinson v. State, 2020, Arc 324. The question on appeal is whether there has been an abuse of that discretion. An abuse of discretion lies when the circuit court renders its decision improvidently, thoughtlessly, or without due consideration. A circuit court has the power to correct clerical errors nunc pro tunc so that the record speaks the truth. Barnett v. State, 2020, Arc 181. Under Rule 60b, A circuit court may at any time correct clerical mistakes in judgments, decrees, orders, or other parts of the record, and errors arising from oversight or omission. A circuit court's power to correct mistakes or errors is to make the record speak the truth, but not to make it speak what it ought to have spoken. Wood's first two claims are that the sentencing order incorrectly reflected his criminal history score and his presumptive sentence. Wood asserts that the circuit court should have corrected the sentencing order to reflect a criminal history score of 0 in place of the criminal history score of 1. Wood also contends that the presumptive sentence should be changed from 54 months imprisonment to 42 months imprisonment. According to Wood, these are clerical errors subject to change under Rule 60b. While we cannot say there would never be such an occasion to correct these figures as clerical errors— this record provides no basis to do so here. End of quote. The opinion noted the appellate court would have to speculate on the reasons for the judge's decision below, so this was not a clerical error. As to a third claim, however, of an error in the hearing date, it was subject to change, so the court reversed. Quote. Wood's third claim of a clerical error pertains to the date on the sentencing order showing that Wood pleaded guilty on July 2, 2013, when in fact the plea hearing was July 16, 2013. Because the transcript reflects the true date he entered his plea, and this court has found that the plea hearing occurred on that date, there is no alternative to the July 2, 2013 date on the sentencing order being a clerical error. For that reason, the circuit court abused its discretion when it refused to enter an order nunc pro-tunc correcting this clerical error. We remand for it to enter an amended sentencing order to correct the date. End of quote. Justice Webb dissenting, writing that reversal and remand was the proper course. I respectfully dissent. Although the majority correctly cites the standard of review, it fails to apply it. Apparently, it fails to apprehend that the circuit court denied Mr. Woods' motion to correct clerical errors in his sentencing order because the court lost jurisdiction to make those corrections after 90 days. This was clear error, as the majority correctly dotes, under Arkansas rule of civil procedure, a circuit court may set aside a judgment and enter an order nunc pro tunc. However, rather than merely reversing and remanding this case for further proceedings, the majority steps into the role of the Circuit Court. I do not doubt the veracity of the majority's statement that we have no means to assess whether this is complete and accurate. However, it is simply erroneous to project this Court's shortcomings onto the Circuit Court and assume that it was similarly encumbered. As noted previously, The circuit court did not deny Mr. Wood's motion to correct the clerical mistakes on his sentencing order because it had to speculate about an issue of fact. The circuit court denied Mr. Wood's motion because it made a mistake of law. End of quote. End of decision. The other three criminal law cases this week were from the Court of Appeals. The first is AM v. State 2021 ARCAP 418, where the Court of Appeals affirmed a juvenile court's conviction for capital murder and aggravated robbery and in so doing addressed statutory competency requirements for psychological experts. This case addresses requirements of Art Code N Section 927502 pertaining to a juvenile's competency evaluation, which mandates the examiner must be qualified by training and experience in the evaluation of juveniles. Chief Judge Harrison wrote this opinion, which is a first impression in construing competency requirements of Art Code and Section 927502 and the Appellate Standard of Review in a Competency Ruling. Quote, While it is true that the statute requires an examiner who is specifically qualified by training and experience in the evaluation of juveniles, the statute is silent as to what that qualification must entail and there is no case law interpreting that section of the statute, end of quote. Defendants' arguments focused upon the limited expert testimony experience in bringing out in Croft's examination that, quote, he has been licensed to conduct forensics examinations in Arkansas for a little over two years and that he had never been qualified to testify as an expert in juvenile matters, end of quote. The challenge failed, however, because of the expert's experience. Dr. Silber testified that he had received his clinical psychology Ph.D. in 2014 and had performed approximately 250 to 300 fitness-to-proceed examinations. He said that approximately 35 to 40 of those examinations had been of juveniles. He also explained that he had advanced training in working with juvenile offenders as part of his forensic fellowship, which included performing a number of evaluations of juveniles under the supervision of the fellowship director, participating in didactic seminars, and receiving case readings on juvenile defendants. The defense objected to Dr. Silbers being recognized as an expert witness in forensic psychology, arguing that Art Code and Section 927502 requires that the assigned clinical psychologist be specifically qualified by training and experience in the evaluation of juveniles and that Dr. Silber did not have the requisite experience. The court overruled the objection and found that Dr. Silber met the requirements of the statute. There are no appellate cases specifically stating the standard of review for a circuit court's determination of fitness to proceed in a juvenile case. A.M. states that this court should employ the substantial evidence standard of review utilized in adult criminal cases. In criminal proceedings, the test for competency to stand trial is whether a defendant has sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding and whether he has a rational as well as a factual understanding of the proceedings against him. The test for competency on appeal... Is whether substantial evidence supports the circuit court's finding. There is substantial evidence if the evidence is forceful enough to compel reasonable minds to reach a conclusion one way or the other and requires more than mere speculation or conjecture. When determining whether there is substantial evidence, it is permissible to consider only the testimony that supports a finding of competency. A.M. contends that when incompetence is the presumption, the appellate court should only consider testimony supporting a finding of incompetency. The state, on the other hand, proposes that when the standard of proof is a preponderance of the evidence, the circuit court's decision will not be reversed unless the court's findings are clearly erroneous or clearly against the preponderance of the evidence. A finding is clearly erroneous when, although there is evidence to support it, The reviewing court on the entire evidence is left with a definite and firm conviction that a mistake has been made. The state also asserts that because the determination of a preponderance of the evidence turns on questions of credibility and weight to be given to the testimony, the appellate court defers to the circuit court's superior position. Because there is a specified standard of proof below, preponderance of the evidence, we hold that a clearly erroneous standard of review is appropriate. While the state's expert testified he was equivocal in part, this was because there was equivocal information. The expert took two examinations, which he conceded was unusual, but he explained additional information was the cause. The Arkansas State Hospital psychologist found defendant competent, and the circuit court accepted his opinions. On the other hand, defendants expert with substantial qualifications rendered a schizophrenia diagnosis resulting in incompetency. Despite challenges, the appellate court deferred to the trial court as it must. Quote, with dueling medical experts, the trier of fact observes the witnesses firsthand, sees their demeanor and responsiveness in answering questions, and is in the best position to determine which is the more credible witness. End of quote. Art Code and Section 927502 provides For a juvenile offender under 13 years of age at the time of the alleged offense and who is charged with capital murder, Section 510101, or murder in the first degree, Section 510102, there shall be a presumption that the juvenile is unfit to proceed and he or she lack capacity to possess the necessary mental state required for the offense charged conform his or her conduct to the requirements of law, and appreciate the criminality of his or her conduct. The prosecution must overcome these presumptions by a preponderance of the evidence. For juveniles under 13 years of age and who are charged with capital murder, Section 5.10.101, or murder in the first degree, Section 5.10.102, the court shall order an evaluation to be formed in accordance with Section 52. 305B, by a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist who is specifically qualified by training and experience in the evaluation of juveniles. End of quote. End of decision. In Ashby v. State, 2021, App 424, the Arkansas Court of Appeals affirmed defendant's drug convictions and upheld denial of his motion to suppress despite an error in dispatch information following the stop for a defective taillight. There were two arguments in the suppression hearing. First, there was no waiver or consent to search, and second, there was erroneous information from the dispatcher which led to the vehicle search. In noting there was no trial court ruling on whether defendant consented to the search, the Court of Appeals reasoned even if there was no consent to search the car, the good faith exception would apply in this case. Judge Gruber explained. We now turn to Ashby's arguments on appeal. She first argues that the waiver was not valid and, as a result, there was no consent for the search. The circuit court did not rule on this issue. Instead, the court denied Ashby's motion to suppress the evidence because it found that Officer Ray had acted in good faith in relying on the dispatched information. Thus, we will assume for the sake of argument that there was no consent for the search and turned to Ashby's argument that Officer Ray did not have a good-faith basis to search her car. End of quote. When police contacted the dispatcher after stopping the vehicle, apparently incorrect information was relayed that said defendant had a search waiver on file. Even so, there is a good-faith exception enunciated by the United States Supreme Court and progeny which permitted the search in this case. Quote, Ashby was searched after a legitimate traffic stop by police officers relying on information specific to Ashby. There is nothing in the record to suggest Officer Ray acted other than reasonably or that the police department had experienced systemic problems with their dispatch system in the past. The court made it clear in Herring v. United States that the exclusionary rule serves to deter deliberate, reckless, or grossly negligent conduct or in some circumstances recurring or systemic negligence. The record in this case does not suggest that such conduct occurred here. Officer Ray pulled Ashby's vehicle over for a defective taillight. He ran a routine check of her license, resulting in a report that she had a search waiver on file. When he questioned her about it, she told him she was not on probation but on a suspended sentence. She did not indicate that the suspension had expired." Although the information provided to Officer Ray by dispatch appears to have been incorrect, there is no evidence that this was due to deliberate, reckless, grossly negligent conduct or recurring or systemic negligence by anyone. When Officer Ray informed Ashby about the search waiver and that he wanted to search her car, she did not object or alert him that his information was incorrect. Rather, she replied, Yeah, adding, I mean, there's nothing I can do to stop it, so... Giving due weight to the inferences drawn by the Circuit Court, we hold that its denial of Ashby's motion to suppress is not clearly against the preponderance of the evidence. End of quote. In a concurring opinion, Judge Burden raised a concern about the progression of application of the good faith exception. I agree that the outcome of this case is controlled by the United States Supreme Court's holding in Herring v. United State 555 U.S. 135. I write separately only to express concern that the good-faith exception is inching toward becoming the rule instead of the exception. By requiring some sort of showing of systemic recklessness or intentional misleading in obtaining the information relied on, I feel we are getting dangerously close to shifting the burden of proof regarding warrantless searches to the defendant. This results in a violation of the long-standing principle that generally— When evidence is obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment, the judicially developed exclusionary rule precludes its use in a criminal proceeding. End of quote. End of decision. In Cox v. State 2021 ARC App 426, the Arkansas Court of Appeals, In affirming convictions for first-degree murder and tampering with evidence, further upheld denial of a motion to suppress, which was premised upon police spotting blood on the wall of the apartment's front porch. When police saw the blood, they obtained a search warrant, which led to incriminating evidence including a pillow sham matching a comforter that the body was wrapped in when found, and other items. First, there is no expectation of privacy in the area, because it is one that typically visitors will walk through to knock. While curtilage of a residence may have an expectation of privacy, this was not one of them. Judge Barrett explained, Cox asserts that the front porch of his apartment, where Captain Frazier claimed to have seen the speck of blood in plain view, constituted curtilage, and Frazier violated his Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable searches and seizures when he searched the porch. The speck of blood was tiny and only a few inches off the ground, so it was, not, it was not believable that Fraser saw it in passing. And blood is not contraband. Cox's arguments are unpersuasive. It has consistently been held that a person's dwelling and curtilage are areas that may be considered free from government intrusion. This court has defined the curtilage of a dwelling or house as a space necessary and convenient habitually used for family purposes and for the carrying on of domestic employment. While dwellings and their curtilage are largely protected, it is generally not considered reasonable to have an expectation of privacy in driveways and walkways, which are ordinarily used by visitors to approach dwellings. What a person knowingly exposes to the public is not protected by the Fourth Amendment. In the present case, Fraser walked under the front porch of Cox's apartment and knocked on the door. When there was no answer, Frazier turned to leave and he noticed the blood on the porch wall. Frazier's conduct in the present case comports with what the Supreme Court has defined as permissible conduct. We also reject Cox's assertion that it is not believable that Fraser saw the speck of blood on the porch wall as he turned to leave. This court does not assess the credibility of witnesses in a suppression hearing, and we do not weigh the evidence presented. That is the responsibility of the circuit court. End of quote. Second, defendant argued that blood is not contraband, and, while true, here police were investigating a murder, and the victim was last seen alive at this apartment complex where defendant lived, the de- decedent's cell phone pinged on a tower near the residence, and his body was found less than a mile away. Quote, the spot of blood found on the front porch of Cox's apartment soon after Williams's body was found could be considered as evidence of possible wrongdoing." End of quote. In a footnote the opinion added that the blood did not prove to be that of the decedent but that does not change the appellate court's analysis. End of decision.